1: Holy cow, here he is uh, with his entourage waiting out in the pickup, and he's got strict rules. They cannot start the engine to keep warm, and they're sitting out there shivering. Good morning, Dr. History. Good morning, Zeb. How are you? I'm good. I'm not getting anything through the headphone here. Uh, Maybe it's turned way down, is it? Oh, well, let me try this then. Are you getting anything now? Yeah. How about now? Better? (laughs) That's better. In other words, the host forgot to turn it on. (laughs) We're good. Don't rub it in. <laughs> so, uh, got to say hi to a guy. You
0: know, last week we talked about the steamboats, the steamships that exploded. Oh,
1: yeah, the real the safe carriers down yeah. the Missouri.
0: And we talked about the Saluda, okay, that yeah. was at Lexington, Missouri yeah. that exploded yeah. and blew everything all over the place. So I got an email from Andrew, and he says uh, his family, his great 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 grandfather was named john sargent and he was aboard the saluda
1: oh my
0: with his fiance now that
1: was on the mississippi right
0: no on the missouri oh it was on the Lex- missouri. Yeah, oh, lexington okay. missouri all right he was on board with his fiance so his first wife must have died or whatever he had two sons and three daughters on the ship on the saluda one son was never seen again oh my John was a, a mason, and he was headed uh, from England to Utah to help build the Salt Lake Temple. Really, His body was found on the river bank. somebody had robbed him of his clothing and his money belt that had three thousand dollars in it. Oh, somebody had my. robbed him, and anyway his uh, so Andrew goes on to say that his great-great-great-grandmother, continued west, eventually settling in Utah, and actually some of his family actually ended up over here in Burley. Really? And, and Habern, yeah. So it's kind of interesting oh, that he uh, has a connection with that, uh, yeah. uh,
1: with the Saluda and You know, you get some really good listeners on this program. Oh, yeah. Well, thanks to Zeb at the Ranch. <laughs> and, of course, uh, I really enjoy all you folks out there in radio land. Thank
0: you. Yeah. So, Andrew, thank you very much. That was uh, some good information. And if we have time, I'm going to talk at the end about the Sultana, the other ship. That, that like, was on the Mississippi. That was on
1: the Mississippi. Yeah. So and there was like 14 or 1,500 people that died. Yeah,
0: I'll, we'll talk about that oh, okay. if we
1: have time what think, are you going to talk about this morning
0: uh i'm going to kind of continue this about the
1: steamboat oh okay so at least you brought a book with you, you that you can, can see over instead of that thing that was like a wall partition i know i know <laughs> well you've got to be able to see me zeb well it's a it's a treat Maybe.
0: yes <laughs> all right so here we go You know, of all the many talented river pilots who went along there uh, on the steamboats in the second half of the 19th century, some earning the then pretty good sum of $1,500 a month. Now, That's pretty good money back then. Oh, that's really good money. Yeah. There's two dynamic men that dominated the field. One career spanned the era of the Rocky Mountain fur trade. The other was a pilot who began his years on the upper Missouri during the Montana gold boom of the 1860s. Now, the first of the great river pilots was a guy named Captain Joseph Marie Labarge. And he was a handsome, muscular man, a French-Canadian.
1: he well, had a name by the name of Marie
0: you know, don't make fun of these people. <laughs> French, Canadian. And maybe I didn't even say that right. Ma- Marie. <laughs> you can't make it better. I can't do anything. Let's just say Labarge. Okay. We'll just say Captain Labarge. There you go. Here we go. He was a handsome, muscular man, French-Canadian. Labarge started his career as a, a riverman in 1832 when few but keelboat men had ever gone up the Missouri River so he started long before the
1: riverboats oh yeah
0: so he had an intuitive sense of water and an uncommon feel for the vessel beneath his feet having also been a fur trapper he was confident of his ability to deal safely with indians oh. so he he'd been been there you know yeah. and he was so confident in fact that in 1847 he took his wife with him on the steamboat Martha to regions of the Missouri. What was her name, Fred? I was going to say it, but I, I. Okay, her name was Pelagia. Okay. <laughs> I just skipped right over that. Okay, so anyway, she was the uh, first white woman to ever. Go clear up the Missouri River. I see. All right. Now, during that voyage, there was indeed a confrontation with the Indians. At a place called Crow Creek in Dakota Territory, hostile uh, Sioux shot a deckhand. They swarmed aboard the boat, and then, having learned something of steamboats from watching them on the river, they used buckets of water to extinguish the embers under the vessel's boilers. They wanted to put out the fire. Oh. Well, LeBarge, these are Indians. Yeah, yeah. So Labarge, however, was unruffled. In complete control, he helped rig a pulley to haul the boat's brass cannon to the deck above the engine room where the weapon had been undergoing repairs. Then he calmly lit a cigar and held it close to the canyon. The cannon. The cannon.
1: Not the canyon.
0: The cannon. Okay. Tell them, he said to a companion, that if they don't get off the boat, (laughs) I'll blow it all to heck. (laughs) We're having trouble. Maybe it'll get better. Poor Marie. Okay. The horrified Indians, along with members of Martha's crew, departed in full flight. Everybody jumped off. They decided it was time to get out of Dodge. His crew. Okay. All right. So now you've got an idea of what this LaBarge guy is about. Okay. Now, during the 1840s and 1850s, such an Indian threat was the exception rather than the rule. didn't happen all that often. I see. But over the next decade, the bravery of the Missouri tribes grew and was altered dramatically by the 1862 discovery of Montana gold. Uh oh. Now, gold drew an increasing number of miners to camps like Virginia City, Nevada City, Last Chance Gulch, Alder Gulch, and threatened the last Indian land. Uh, you know so much more than the few trappers that ever went up that way, and
1: this is long before custer 's last stand wasn 't it we 're going to
0: actually get to that later ah. yeah we're going to get yeah and it was, yes, yeah. yeah, but the invasion turned bands of Sioux and Northern Cheyenne into enemies with all these steamers and the army posts and forts that were going up through there, and you know these hordes of people heading across their land. Now, even though Joseph Labarge had a much better understanding of Indians than the army officers and Indian agents who were given the task of dealing with them, the Sioux remained a continual source of danger. In the summer of 1863, one particularly persistent band engaged in a six hundred mile running battle with La Barge's chartered vessel, the Robert Campbell. The chase ended only when La Barge and his crew swept the attackers with a storm of cannon and small arms fire, killing nearly forty Sioux and twenty
1: horses in a wow. But 600 miles are getting harassed. And, you know, they've got to go to shore to get wood, too. Yeah, I was going to say, now, the Missouri, how wide and how deep is that river? You You said it wasn't very deep at some point.
0: Right. And I think it's like a lot of rivers, it can be really deep or really, really shallow. And that's why they had those special Missouri River boats that could float in as little as 14 inches of water.
1: Yeah, but what about the width?
0: Yeah. of the river? Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm not sure. I, I'm assuming, like a lot of them, it was narrow in places. So
1: when the Indians attacked, they could basically, in certain places, ride right out of horseback.
0: Yeah, just and uh, get on a, a hill overlooking the river and yeah. just shoot down.
1: This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer,
0: he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Well, by June of 1866, the rich, rich gold strikes uh, coincided with the surrender of Robert E. Lee at Apple had triggered waves of invasion and exploitation such as the Northern Rockies had never known. That spring, 31 steamers had reached or, more, or were approaching the head of navigation at Fort That's That was as far as they could go. Yeah. Though not more than a half a dozen had done so in the previous year. So they tripled how many boats were heading up the river. Mm-hmm. And they... Uh, you know, they uh, there was a point where uh, the boats were lined up right one behind another along a half mile of riverfront. Really? And among them was a boat called the Luella, which was a survivor of the 1856 St. Louis Ice Gorge. Uh, Luella was now captained by 34-year-old Grant Marsh. Making his first run on the upper Missouri. Now, last week I talked about that ice gorge. You remember where he had these huge, huge chunks of ice coming down and yeah. destroyed. I don't know how many.
1: Let me ask you a boat. quick question. Last week you also mentioned that a lot of these boats were really dangerous and they'd blow up. Exactly. As the years went by, did they develop better steam engines, per se? You know,
0: I don't know if they got any better because the goal was to get that boat up the river or down the river as fast as you could. Yeah. And so the captains would oftentimes uh, uh, just, you know, go to it. And, or the wood tour. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now this next guy, his name was Grant Marsh. And he may have been new to the upstream reaches of the Big Muddy, but he was also a veteran of the Ohio and Tennessee rivers and the lower Missouri. So he'd been on rivers.
1: He'd been on them, Yeah. yeah.
0: Now, it took him no time at all to make his mark among the miners swarming around Fort Benton. Now, although captains made a habit of hurrying downstream, from Fort Benton to avoid the shallow water of midsummer, Marsh decided to delay until September, and he was risking freezing, or a freeze-up, in order to
1: accommodate miners who wanted to stay at their diggings as long as possible. Did it take? What was the duration of the trip, normally? Oh, boy. Was he, it like weeks or months or uh, what? Uh, going upstream, I'm sure, was like two or three months, I'm, I'm going to say. I see.
0: And they started as quick as they could get on the river. Yeah. And then, of course, going downstream would have been much faster. But yeah. the steamboat, the Luella, finally did leave, and she carried with her the most valuable cargo ever, ever borne downstream, $1,250,000 in gold dust. Ooh, That's a lot. Wow. Now, working Luella, uh, as few boats had ever been worked on the upper Missouri, this Captain Marsh handily disposed of an Indian war party and made a profit of twenty four thousand dollars in the bargain, all of which earned him a respect rarely accorded new captains on the Missouri, so he was kind of new, but he made twenty four thousand which today
1: would be like making well over two hundred thousand yeah, yeah two hundred and
0: fifty three hundred thousand well anyway, uh, Marsh had served as a mate of the New Orleans uh, ship, the John J Rowe. That supported the General Ulysses S. Grant's forces at the Battle of Shiloh on the Tennessee River. He admired good soldiers and felt felt a sense of duty to them. And uh, his career on the river was actually a spectacular success. Now, the year following the ambush that he had of the Luella, Marsh was asked to cope with the more serious attack while command of the steamboat, the Ida Stockdale, on his way to Fort Bend. He was confronted by a big Sioux war party. The only escape, as Marsh saw it, was to risk a fast, narrow shoot. Previously unattempted by a steamer. He headed into the quickening water of the chute, scraped across the sandbar with bullets clanging on his boilerplate, put his wheel hard down to avoid a jutting snag, ground along the bottom for a few seconds, and glided into open water with the sound of the Indians stopping. He got away. He got away. Wow. So, you know, so there's, there's white water. There's rapids on yeah. this. Yeah. You know, so Uh, Anyway, there was uh, inconsistency about these uh, brushes with Indians and the whole pattern of their reaction to the whites. Uh, The captain who came downstream with bullet holes in his upper works might find himself starting back with a cargo for the warriors who put them there. So they traded, you know, they took goods back upriver where they were traded with the Indians.
1: I see. So... You know, you mentioned about how they scraped the bottom. uh Uh-huh. Holy smokes, if they had a full load, they could really be grounded, couldn't they? Oh, yeah.
0: And a lot of them did.
1: Oh. A lot lot of them got grounded and could never get off. And
0: so so what they would do a lot of times is they'd unload all the cargo they possibly could, hoping that they could get off the sandbar. So... Now, the next decade proved to be a decisive one for the riverman's way of life. St. Louis lost its position as a supplier of the Missouri, and when railroads reached new ports like Sioux City, then Yankton, then Bismarck, uh, you know, things were kind of coming to an end. Uh, By 1873, the U.S. Army prepared uh, to stop the rebellious Sioux. It was obvious that the Yellowstone River, which watered the Indians' remaining hunting grounds, would be a key uh, to military operations. Clear up the Yellowstone. And one knew whether the no one knew whether the stream was navigable for more than a few miles above its mouth. The Yellowstone we're talking about now. Yeah. Now Marsh was chosen to find out and he achieved results in two monumental voyages. One expedition that same year took him uh, and the steamer the Key West 460 miles to the mouth of the Powder River. Another, in 1875, took Marsh and both the Josephine farther up the Yellowstone's higher reaches to within 60 miles of present-day Yellowstone
1: Park. Wouldn't it have been easier to send uh, exploring groups on horseback? Well, you know, I... <laughs> How do you turn a boat around when it's grounded?
0: Right. And, you know, he did it. He got ah. up that far. But I think the main thing was to get goods and supplies I for, the, for the military. I see. Now... On May seventeenth, 1876, Colonel George Armstrong Custer's 7th Cavalry uh, Regiment rode out of the Dakota, Dakota Territory, uh, out of Fort Abraham Lincoln. Grant Marsh was selected as captain and pilot of the 190-foot stern wheeler, the Far West, which steamed up the Yellowstone as the Army's supply boat, oh, I didn't hospital know that. boat,
1: and Mobile Command Post. I didn't know that. Yeah. So basically, they, for lack of better words, they had a Navy support them.
0: Exactly. You're right. Now, Mars steered up the Bighorn River, where no steamboat had ever dared before, and anchored near its junction with the Little Bighorn. So, so he, he was, was pretty close. close. Yeah. At almost that same moment, only 11 miles away, Custer was making his fatal approach to the waiting in dens. And, you know, of course, five of the companies were pretty well wiped out. Seven other companies managed to survive and get away.
1: What about this guy in the boat? Who told yeah. him to turn around and get out
0: of there? Well, Grant Marsh was soon ordered to take the wounded, along with word of the catastrophe, back to Fort Abraham Lincoln. I see. How big was that boat? It was 190 feet long. Oh, my. So it was, was a big boat. Long. Yeah, it was a big boat. Well. Now. So among pilots, every river had to be learned twice. Going up the river was different than going down the river, and no steamboatman had ever seen the Bighorn River going downstream. So Marsh ordered the far west lines to be cast off. He rang up the engine room and he began. And he had a succession of chutes and islands and rocks and rapids. Uh, and he shot down there with speeds during, through narrow parts of this river. And here's what the the, the newspaper said, quote, Far west would take a chute on this or that side of an island as the quick judgment of the pilot would direct. And the newspaper man went on, down the Yellowstone, the staunch craft shot, and down that river, sealed to pilots she made over 20 miles an hour. That's pretty fast. The bold captain was taking chances, but he scarcely thought of them. He was flying under orders. Lives were at stake. Now, remember, he had a bunch of wounded people on the boat as well, Zeb. The engineer was instructed to keep steam at the highest pitch. The crisis passed, and the Far West had escaped a fate more terrible than Custer's. The rate of speed was unrivaled in the annals of uh, boating. It was a thrilling voyage.
1: Fast enough to have Indians water skiing. behind.
0: (laughs) Fifty-four hours after her wild journey had begun, the Far West arrived at the Bismarck Wharf directly across the Missouri from Fort Abraham Lincoln. No kidding. Even including... Necessary stops, like to get wood, he had averaged an incredible, incredible thirteen miles an hour over a distance of more than seven hundred miles.
1: I mean, that's that's moving in those days,
0: and, you know. And I'm assuming he didn't stop for
1: a night. Are you pretty familiar with the environment of that river? I am not. I wish I, I was. Yeah,
0: I, I would like to
1: see it. I don't remember it, it being that wide and that deep.
0: Uh, right, and I know it must have been again wide at places and narrow Holy with smokes. rapids and stuff, but in the air, in the end, the far west represented more than this ultimate triumph of steam power and human nerve. The long, brave day of the Missouri river Mo- Riverman declined. No American vessel ever approached her record, and she remained the queen of speed.
1: I did not know, and I've read a lot of historical accounts about the uh, fight at the Little Bighorn. I did not know there was a riverboat, literally, right next door.
0: Yeah, and I, I had read that. I knew that, uh, but I didn't know what the boat was Holy or anything go- about. And
1: it was 190 feet long? Yeah, so it was a good size
0: boat. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Now... We've just got a few minutes, so I want to talk about the Sultana, who was on the Mississippi. And I've just got a little bit about it. The Sultana, built in 1863, was the fifth boat to bear that name. It was the end of the Civil War. There were thousands of prisoners of war. The government was paying $2.75 per enlisted man and $8 per officer to any steamboat captain who would take a group north. Okay. James Mason was the captain. He had some kind of dirty dealings with a U.S. Captain Hatch who would get a kickback for every prisoner Mason could squeeze onto the Sultana. Uh, so the legal capacity was only 376. But when she backed away from the dark, uh, the dock that terrible evening, there were 2,137 oh, people wedged into every available oh. space, along with cargo. Oh, my So it was the middle of the night. Passengers were trying to sleep when three of the four boilers exploded. The burning wreckage, uh, the screams of those burned by fire or steam, the decks collapsed. Both smokestacks fell, trapping people on the boat and killing more. Uh, Many of the people jumped into the cold water to escape the fire, but they were so weak, they soon went under. Some were rescued as they struggled in the river. There were several other steamers that headed up to try to rescue people, but... Uh, According to the story, bodies and body parts drifted ashore for months afterwards. The official death count was 1,547. And uh, and I believe that was uh, what they said was the worst maritime disaster.
1: And that's on the Mississippi.
0: Exactly. Down near, let's
1: see. Where would that be? I want to say... I want to say Memphis or... In the area of Tennessee? Yeah. Was it down... Okay, I'm going to ask you a dumb question. For some reason, I thought it was near... Um, uh, what's the name of that town in uh, Missouri on the banks, uh, not too far from Sykes, and Cape Girardeau.
0: I think it, Does it was Does that sound south. familiar?
1: No, I think it was farther south. I see. Yeah, okay. I think
0: it was down... I wish I could remember the names of the town, but I I think Memphis was one of them. Oh
1: my! uh,
0: Right in that area, but
1: fifteen hundred
0: people. Yeah. Wow. And uh, can you imagine the carnage and the, you know, and you know how do you rescue people in a a fast flowing river for one thing, and you know, and cold and.
1: Anyway. I've got to run, but I want to tell you, you really know your (laughs) riverboats. But I learned today, I did not know that. Of all the books I've read, I did not know that there was a riverboat near Custer's Last Stand. Just waiting. Holy cow.